From KUER News in Salt Lake City, this is Radio West. I'm Doug Fabrizio. It wasn't so long ago that if you wanted to explore some of the historical contradictions in Mormon history, you really had to put some effort into finding the information. But of course, that's no longer true in the information age. So it's not just intellectuals or scholars or even the disaffected who are encountering articles about Joseph Smith's polygamy or DNA evidence that challenges the historical origins of the Book of Mormon. Rank-and-file Latter-day Saints, true believers, are encountering this information, and for some it's causing a real crisis of faith. On Sunday, the New York Times religion correspondent Lori Goodstein profiled one such story. And today in the program, we're talking about that article. In some ways, it comes down to this. Just how flexible is Mormon belief and where's the breaking point? Join us after the news. This is Radio West. I'm Doug Fabrizio. On Sunday, the New York Times religion correspondent Lori Goodstein explored what she called a wave of doubt and disillusionment among members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. This happens when church members come across information, principally on the Internet, that challenges the story they were taught about their faith and their religion. This is stuff like the disturbing stories of Joseph Smith taking dozens of wives, some of them as young as 14, or DNA evidence that contradicts the Book of Mormon narrative, or the influence of masonry in the Mormon temple ceremony. In the article, Goodstein quotes the Mormon historian Richard Bushman, who told her when some members come across this information, it's excruciating. They feel like they were tricked or betrayed, he said. Goodstein's article is also significant because she was able to contact and profile a prominent former high-ranking LDS church leader, a man named Hans Matson, who talked about his response to finding this information on the web. Now, mind you, this is a grown man, a man who had been raised in the church, who told Goodstein it caused his whole world to come down. We're talking about that article today and the issues it raises for modern Mormonism, and we invite you to join the conversation. 801-585-WEST is the number. Our email address, radiowest at KUER.org. For Mormon listeners, have you encountered information online that has challenged your perceptions of the Church? Has it challenged your faith? Just how flexible is your sense of belief, and what's the breaking point for you? What if, in fact, some beliefs aren't historical or literally true? What would that mean? Do you share your doubt with those close to you? And if so, how has your family or community reacted? One thing I want to make clear, though, I don't want to spend a lot of time disputing the particulars of some of this information that people are finding online. We can talk about that later at some other point. But for today's purposes, we're more interested in finding out what effect it's having on the faithful and the church itself. Lori Goodstein is with us, national religion correspondent, as I said, for the New York Times. Um, she's joining us today from a studio in the New York Times. And uh, Lori Goodstein, welcome. Thanks very much for being with us. Well, thank you for inviting me. Well, I guess I wanted to ask first, how is it that you found Hans Matson? Well, I'd been um, speaking with Mormons in the course of my reporting as a religion writer. Um, the LDS Church is one of the churches I cover, and certainly um, during the the campaign of Mitt Romney for president, uh, was spending time interviewing lots and lots of Mormons and kept running into a similar scenario: um, people who had uh, who were questioning their faith, who were doubting their faith, and who were uh, really in in crisis over it. Um, it led me to some of the uh, websites, um, what some Mormons call the blogger knackle, um, where people are discussing these issues. And in the course of that, ran across a comment by someone who said that they had been uh, in the leadership at the level of what's called an area authority, mm -hmm. area authority 70. Right. Um, which is someone who is in responsible for a geographic area in the church. So, uh, you know, the person didn't identify themselves, but that certainly jumped out at me. And by using the contacts I have um, among Mormons, was able to find out who it was. And this was a church leader, Hans Matson, um, who was in Sweden. Uh, he is no longer an area authority mm -hmm. seventy. He uh, he's retired from that. Um, but he had uh, been public over in Sweden asking these questions. What is it in particular that um, that interested you about this story? Um, because you say in the article, all faiths have skeptics, all faiths have detractors, but, but it seems like Mormonism has very particular challenges. Talk about how it's different. 
Well, I think it is common to faiths that read their scriptures literally, that are more fundamentalist in their approach to understanding the faith. Mm -hmm. Um, There are lots of uh, religious folks who understand their faith in a more allegorical kind of way. They don't necessarily assume that the Red Sea parted literally for the Israelites when when they crossed from Egypt um, or that manna fell from heaven. you know, uh, and for those people, the cognitive dissonance of uh, you know something being not literally true is not a problem. But what I was you know, came to understand by speaking with Mormons is that they had grown up to believe that the Book of Mormon is literally and historically the truth. Right. And in fact, Mormons you know give testimony um, in church. They will stand up and say, you know, I know, I know this church is true. And when they say that, they mean not just that I believe it with all my heart and I love this church, but that also everything I'm reading in the scripture is literally true. Mm. And so um, the kind of um, crisis that – and I would call it a a crisis that some people um, experience when they discover that there is other information and that perhaps what they had thought was – was literal truth is not, um, was profound in people's lives. I mean, it led not just to questioning their faith, but also, um, you know, questioning how they saw the world and had an effect for some people on on their relationships if they began to talk about it with people they knew, with Mm. with spouses, with parents, uh, with their children. So this to me was all, you know, uh, very new and, and interesting ground to cover. Do you think there's a cycle to certain religions? I mean, one one of the the Mormon scholars you talked to talk about how explained how you know, a lot of Christian religions have these hiccups that they've already dealt with because Mormonism is relatively young. So is there a cycle here where at first the belief is quite literal, and then it becomes a li- it, it evolves a little bit as people sort of move throughout it? And Mormonism still early; they're still in that literal phase in some way. Right. I think you're referring there to uh, Professor Terrell Givens, who's quoted in my story. He's a uh, professor who writes a lot about uh, the Mormon church, and he's he's an active Mormon at the University of Richmond. And he said – the way he put it, I I really liked. uh, He said the Roman Catholic Church has had 2,000 years to work through the hiccups in its history, and Mormonism is still an adolescent religion. Um, I – think from reporting this story that you can almost see that the LDS church is in a period of flux where uh, it's coming to grips with these questions and um, leaders are discussing among themselves uh, how to respond. Mm. And not everybody's on the same page. Um, But you can certainly see indications that there is a willingness to discuss these things and to be open. the uh, the spokesman for the church told me that you know our approach is not to want to shut down people asking these questions. Now that's different from the 1970s and 80s when uh, Mormon scholars were excommunicated uh, for challenging church teachings. Mm-hmm. That has not happened in this wave, and I think that's something to really pay close attention to. That's a signal to me that the church is um, you know has an instinct to want to be uh, you know be more transparent and to have these discussions and not be threatened by them. Mm. Um, I think another important uh, thing I discovered in the course of doing doing this story is that that professor I mentioned, uh, Terrell Givens, and uh, another one that you mentioned, Richard Bushman, who's a very eminent historian at Columbia University, who's written really one of the definitive biographies of Joseph Smith, um, they are putting on sessions uh, throughout the United States for uh, Mormons who are questioning. They're calling them crucible of doubt um, meetings. And they're sessions at which people are invited to come and ask questions and uh, discuss things openly. Now, those sessions are not sponsored by the church, but they wouldn't be happening if the church didn't um, sanction them. Mm-hmm. Um, local bishops have to have to prove that these meetings are happening. And uh, Terrell Givens and his wife Fiona Givens did sessions like this uh, in England and Scotland and Ireland uh, recently and drew hundreds of people to each of these meetings. That to me is a really important sign that there is now an openness to discussion that may not have existed before. Mm-hmm. Were you at all surprised um, talking to Hans Matson? about 
that a leader of, you know, of his age and his stature could make it through his life to that point and not know certain things about the history of his church. It, it seems really striking that a man of his age would not have known, and this seemed to be incredibly troubling. I'm not sure if it was the clincher, but the fact that Joseph Smith had um, engaged in polygamy, which a lot of Orthodox you know, rank-and-file Mormons, I guess, don't understand. But was that, is that surprising in any way? Well, it was certainly surprising to a lot of our readers who said things like, how could he have been so naive? Everybody knows that. But one thing I've learned in um, you know, speaking with Mormons is that they did not necessarily grow up knowing that. Um, what does seem to have happened is that um, they understood that polygamy had a role in the early church and that some early church leaders were polygamists. They know that Brigham Young was a, a polygamist. Um, and certainly, you know, many Mormons who are, um, you know, whose families have been in the church for generations, they can trace their lineage to polygamists. So it's not as though they did not know about polygamy. What they didn't know was that Joseph Smith, the founder, for, uh, the founder and first prophet of the church, um, was a polygamist, how many wives he had and the conditions under which um, he was uh, you know, he was married to those women. Mm-hmm. Um, that, I think, is the the particulars of that. And reading some of the documents, see, Hans Matson not just discovered that this was, uh, you know, that this existed, but he went and read some of the documents, which are now available. Mm-hmm. That's the irony here. Yeah, the church yeah. has made these documents available. There's something called the Joseph Smith uh, Papers Project. And the church has published something like seven volumes of Joseph Smith's papers. Well, in those papers, you can see letters, um, you know, correspondence between Joseph Smith and uh, some of these wives, uh, Joseph Smith's first wife, Emma. There's documents where they are discussing, you know, these marriages. And Hans uh, Matson went and read some of those, and that's partly what he found disturbing. Mm. What, what was it the... Um, um there's a terrific interview that you do with Hans Matson. It's on the it's on the New York Times website. We'll put a link to it on ours. Um, I wanted to play a section of to give people a sense of how he's talking about all of this, um, because he he talks about Laurie Goodstein, um, how he had built this faith on on a, on this foundation, and it really began to crumble. Um, let, let me let me play a clip here. This is from uh, uh, Laurie Goodstein's conversation with Hans Matson um, from the New York Times website. When members are using the internet, as I usually call a crystal ball, you can't hide anything, everything is there, they have, they find out a lot of questions about, the, especially about the church history. And uh, of course, uh, being a, a kind of a high leader in the church, I also have those questions to me and I have to try to deal with them. And when I did that, we, we uh, found out that the church, as I look at it, didn't give me any answers, really. I think what's interesting about Matson's experience is that he, he kind of goes out, does his research, and makes what seems to be kind of a presentation to church leaders to say, look, this is not just me. Um, there are a lot of people who are struggling with this or having this crisis of faith, and we need to deal with it. Um, what was the response that he was getting when he when he made this kind of presentation or when he made this case? Well, I think it was mixed. Um, yeah. He uh, spoke with um, uh, people who were his senior in leadership. And um, to some extent, it seems like they tried to respond to his questions. Um, at one point, um, we, we know uh, Hans Matson did not, you know, tell me who who this was, um, uh, but he did say that a very highly placed church leader was sent to Sweden to speak to him and uh, and some other Swedes who were having questions. Because at a certain point, it wasn't, you know, Hans didn't initiate this. Yeah. This came up more from the grassroots. He found himself having to respond. So there was already... Um, there were already doubters among um, 
the Mormons in Sweden in the church there, and he was trying to respond to them. So at some point, the church um, sent a, a, um, a church official came and met with Hans and some of these other Swedes. And the way Hans tells the story is that the the church leader said, I have something in a, um, a briefcase here. It's a volume that we are going to publish that will answer all your questions and will show that uh, the doubters don't have a leg to stand on. Um, but what Hans says is that that volume was never published and that when he went and asked that leader, you know, what, what happened to this uh, – you know this effort, this document that would answer all our questions. He was kind of told to to go away, mm-hmm. and so that was really for him a turning point because he thought he really believed um, until that point that there were answers to all the questions. Of course, the church had dealt with this, and they just had to um, you know to make this public. Um, then he became he was kind of felt like he was more on his own, and he had to find the answers for himself. Um, at a later date in two thousand and ten. The church sent um, two historians from the history department, one um, Elder Marlon Jensen and another Richard Turley, who are really, really, um, uh, you know, the top historians in, in the church um, and who are very conversant with us. And they had a, um, you know, many hours long session with uh, Swedes. And that that conversation is now uh, up on some websites because somebody surreptitiously recorded this. And if you listen to that or read the transcript of that, you can hear um, the the detail that the Swedes are asking questions of these uh, these two church historians. Mm-hmm. And sometimes, you know, what the historians, the two historians, have to say to them is is very honest. They'll say, "We don't have that answer," yeah. um, so they can't they can't answer anything. But I go into all that detail to show that the church did try to respond. It's not that they they didn't make attempts to. Um, you know, to meet his to meet his questions, it's that he felt that they you know couldn't always um, yeah, they they couldn't always satisfactorily answer all the questions. Mm. Do you get a sense that there is um, um, a, a struggle going on within the Mormon hierarchy among the Mormon leaders about how to to deal with this? You get some sense that Mormon leaders are reacting this way, say for example, related to homosexuality. Some are interested in evolving the the church's position on it. Others are pretty staunch, hardcore, let's stay the course. Do you get a sense that the same kind of thing may be going on when you're talking about this question of dealing with historical contradictions and questions? I do get that sense, but because um, the conversations at that level of leadership um, are so private, I don't know enough to say that that's actually the case. Right. Where is Hans Matson now in relationship to the church? He talks about how he wanted to stay, wanted to be involved in well, the church. Well, that's what's what's so interesting. And my, my story, I couldn't really go into a lot of that. I met Hans and his wife, Birgitta, um, uh, here in, in New York. And um, they were clearly still very um, – torn up about this. Mm -hmm. They love their church. They value uh, their church and the community. Their family is in the church. Um, And they said they, after this uh, journey that they took, they said they visited many other um, kinds of churches. they, um, they can, you know, they are Christians. They visited other Christian churches. They had conversations with uh, ministers in other churches, and they really went on kind of a, an odyssey, maybe to find another church home other than the LDS Church. And what Hans said to me was um, that he felt most at home in the Mormon Church. He's, he said, "I'm a Mormon." Yeah. Um, he loves everything about the faith. So at this point, I would say he has one foot in and one foot out, which I have to say I've met a lot of Mormons like that. Mm. Um, they identify with the church. They feel thoroughly Mormon culturally um, and religiously, but they are now feeling uh, that they can't wholeheartedly say, honestly, I know this church is true. Laurie Goodstein, she is uh, the national religion correspondent for the New York Times. Her story, Some Mormons Search the Web and Find Doubt, appeared in the paper on Sunday. And we'll put a link to it on our website. She joined us from the studios at the New York Times. And uh, Laurie Goodstein, thank you very much for the time. 
Thanks for having me. 801-585-WEST, the number to join us. Our email address, radiowest at KUER.org. We'll take a break. Back in a moment. You're listening to Radio West on KUER. This is Radio West. I'm Doug Fabrizio. On Sunday, the New York Times published an article by religion correspondent Lori Goodstein, which profiled the crisis of doubt by a former prominent leader in the LDS Church who had encountered information on the Internet about Mormonism that disturbed him. Today in the program, we're talking about uh, what uh, Goodstein calls this wave of doubt and disillusionment the LDS Church is grappling with. You can join us, 801-585-WEST, our email address, radiowest at KUER.org. John DeLynn is joining us now. He's a creator and a host of Mormon Stories. It's a podcast that focuses on Mormon faith and culture. He has a, he's also a Ph.D. candidate in psychology at Utah State University. And last year, he published this survey called Understanding Mormon Disbelief, which we're going to be talking about. Joining us today from Utah Public Radio in Logan. John DeLynn, welcome. Thanks for being with us. Thanks, Doug. I'm a longtime fan of your show. Thanks. Listen, I want to start with... Um, First of all, what's your interest in this? We should say you're, you're a Mormon. Let's get that out of the way. And what are, why are you interested in this question of disbelief? Yes, I, I am an active Mormon. And uh, the way it happened to me, and this actually, this story is, is relatively common. I was uh, working for Microsoft in, in Redmond, Washington, uh, back in, in the late 90s, early 2000s. And I was called as a seminary teacher. And I began studying church history in depth as a way to be a more effective teacher. And for the first time, started understanding the church's narrative in a way that was very different from uh, from the way I'd, I had sort of learned things growing up, and it caused a huge crisis in my life. Wait, and, what do you mean by that? What do you mean the narrative was different? It means you, if you were encountering stuff that you, I hadn't heard before, the Joseph Smith polygamy stuff, the DNA yeah, in the Book yeah. of Mormon stuff, all that stuff, was, and that was, you, weren't, you didn't know what to do with that. Yeah, so you know, this question about how could Hans not have known that Joseph was a polygamist, I guess I had in the back of my mind that Joseph might have had a few polygamous wives. But what what was surprising to me was to learn that it was over 30, that many of them were teenagers, that a number of them were married to other men. Uh, that's And then to find out that Joseph wasn't honest with Emma about it at times, and to find out that um, in some ways he used pressure to pressure these young women to either marry him or not, or maybe face consequences. All those details to the story, I did not know. And mm-hmm. when I learned that in my 30s, I say, how did I go 30 years in the church and and never learn this? Now, I I bear some of that responsibility because there were books that talked about this. But I felt, you know, that the church discouraged reading from those types of books. I was so busy in my own life that I didn't really have, you know, make that a priority. Mm -hmm. And so once I did pick up Fawn Brody's No Man Knows My History and, and other books and learned that, then it was just so shocking. Let's talk about the study that you did, the survey. This was conducted in 2011. And it was directed at people who had, as I understand it, once believed in Mormonism and who no longer do. Uh, And in fact, you threw out, you said, the respondents who told you they still believed the Mormon church was the, quote, only true and living church. You were looking for people who were more um, who disbelievers is how you put it. But it seems like it's more complicated than that. Yeah, to be honest, we did the study at at the request of Hans. Hans was going to be meeting with some church leaders, and he wanted data. Um, So we put the survey together relatively quickly. And in no way did we intend this survey to be a a random sample to to be able to extrapolate and generalize to the church body. We we looked at it as an ethnographic study Mm -hmm. to try and understand the phenomenon of you know, internet-related disbelief. So this survey focuses mostly in the U.S. It's mostly people of higher income, of higher education levels who are internet-connected. And it just wants to understand how do people lose their faith in relation to the internet in the U.S. And for that purpose, having a sample of over 3,000 people, we feel like it really does paint a good picture. But it's certainly not a perfect study. Yeah. I guess it's also important to point out, as you have, that... The ones that you talk to, because there's the question, well, look, they weren't they, these people who are who are troubled by all of this. They weren't really that far in the church in the first place. But you say many of these 
um, who who are leaving or now disaffected or confused by all of this, they were at one point pretty highly dedicated. Yeah, and that's one of the misconceptions. You know, the the two most offensive things you can say to someone who who's lost their faith is that they were um, offended by someone or they just wanted to sin. The truth is that overwhelmingly, uh, this sample. Um, you know, one fifth of all the men, 20 percent have served in bishoprics, um, a, a, a relatively similar percentage of, of the women have served in Relief Society presidencies. And th- these these people didn't become doubters because they took the church casually. Most of these people loved the church so much that they took it seriously. They believed it whole cloth. And that's why the disaffection was so traumatic, because these, you know, in, in I've spoken with a few uh, top leaders of the church, and the words that they have often used is best and brightest. Those aren't my words. It's theirs. Because these are uh, stake presidents, bishops, mission presidents, temple presidents. I've had bishops call me regularly um, and and express their own struggling doubts as their bishops, saying, if my congregation knew, if my wife knew, uh, I don't know what to do. John, can you help me? And of course, I'm not equipped necessarily to do that. But the, these are not just marginalized members. These are many of our of our noblest saints that are having these problems. What is it that gets to them, John? I mean, I'm, I'm, uh, <clears throat> as opposed to talking in these broad terms, you mentioned quite specific the Joseph polygamy part. When you talk to them, what's the thing that they just that they that they encounter that they that they struggle with? There are the, the survey talks about the fact that there you know there's basically three groups of issues. There's mm-hmm. doctrinal theological issues, there's historical issues, and there are cultural issues. Yeah. And each one of those are significant. But at the end, the biggest issue is one of trust. They they feel like the church should have been more open, more um, straightforward. You know, the church asks its members to be completely honest. They feel like they should have been taught these difficult things earlier, that the narrative that they were taught was not accurate. And so they 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 feel lied to and they feel betrayed, and um, they start to wonder whether they can trust the leadership. And some of the things that Joseph Smith and others did uh, sometimes becomes questions of character for Joseph Smith and right. some of the early leaders of the church. So there's trust with Joseph, and then there's trust with the current leadership. And mostly people just feel deceived. Blacks in the priesthood, that's an issue. This question of DNA in the Book of Mormon, that's a question, an issue. Masonic influences in the temple ceremony comes up. Conflicting versions of Joseph Smith's so-called first vision. Um, anachronisms in the Book of Mormon, you know, references to horses and swords and steel and elephants and chariots and those kinds of things, which do, it doesn't seem historically possible. Um, Joseph Smith's use of the peepstone um, uh, the Book of Abraham, um, a lot of these things, these particular things that—because that, uh, Laurie Goodstein was talking about how Mormons are literal believers, or um, they're fundamentalist in many of these beliefs. And it seems like when they encounter John DeLynn, things that challenge the literal—their literal concept— of the church, that that becomes particularly difficult. Like like the Book of Mormon, inaccurate, you know, some of the anachronisms in the Book of Mormon, for example. Yes, Doug, that's a that's a great list, and and I think we can't underestimate the importance of those items. And the only thing I would like to do is counterbalance that and say that for the older generations, let's say people in their thirties and forties and fifties, those issues that you articulated are central issues. What we're finding from the survey is that for women. And for younger people, those issues can be significant, but for women and younger people, it's often more the cultural issues. Mm. It's how are women treated in the church? Are are women given a place at the table? How are gays and lesbians treated? Do I feel edified at church? Am I bored at church? Um, I was speaking with a young woman from Cache Valley just last night, and she's she's lost her faith, and, and I asked her why, and she said it was actually none of those issues. It was more when I tried to talk to people at church, when I tried to talk to my bishop, when I tried to talk to my family, they discouraged me from questioning. They made me feel bad for my questions, and I just thought to myself, man, if I can't ask questions, then then I don't feel like, like this is a, a safe place for me to be. Mm. And so sometimes, you know, for the younger people, it's more the cultural issues than it is the historical ones. But right. but all of it's important. 
um, I want to get to some calls here in a moment, but let me ask you this. This was interesting. Uh, Lori Goodstein was talking about how Hans Matzen and his wife had sort of looked around for another kind of church to to follow, ended up coming back to or being, I'm not sure if settling on Mormonism, but that's where he felt the most comfortable. So where does a disaffected Mormon go if they don't believe in Mormonism anymore? Because most don't go to another church, you found. I mean, they they get out of church as a for, sort of formal organized institution, I suppose. But the highest number in your survey, pretty solid majority, say they consider themselves agnostic or atheist or, or, or humanist. They're not going to another church. Yeah, I think that because our, our church, people people experience our church sometimes in a very fundament, fundamentalist, literalistic way. When When the house of cards falls, it falls completely, not just for... Joseph Smith and the Book of Mormon in the church, but for God and Christ and for religion altogether. Mm-hmm. So I think that maybe has something to do with the degree to which we're so literalistic and so fundamentalist oftentimes in our um, experiences with the church. Not everybody, but particularly these, these people. And I think this question deserves study. Why do so many um, former Mormons abandon faith altogether? It's a real, it's a real important question, Doug. Let's go to the phones. 801-585-WEST is the number to join us. Walt is with us in Salt Lake. Walt, welcome. I just wanted to say that uh, I'm an archetypal parent uh, of my seven kids. Three of them have gone through this crisis, uh, and only one of them's come out on the other end. Uh, the other two are still in it. And we've had these conversations, and, and I'm not struggling at all. I figure what's true is true and what is and isn't. Uh, but what I've tried to tell them is that the fact that people have been able to raise doubts and concerns about DNA and the Book of Abraham and things don't prove that the Church is false. They're just things that we don't have answered yet. And like I say, that works for me, but it doesn't work for all of my kids. Is that, that So that's satisfying for some of your kids. It's not satisfying for others. Well, uh, four of my seven just accept everything like it is, and I think they just close their ears when they hear stuff like this. Uh, I had three that were inquisitive and who looked it up, and, and it's been rough for them. Yeah. Well, we're glad you called. Thanks very much. Thank you. 801-585-WEST, again, the number to join us. Tom is with us in Las Vegas. Tom, welcome. Thanks, guys. Hey, I have not uh, been a literal believer for a, a, quite a number of years, but I still have a metaphorical faith, and um, my biggest frustration isn't the historical issues anymore. It's the fact that as a metaphorical believer, I don't feel like I can engage the church meetings. I feel like the meetings and the curriculum at church is geared exclusively towards literal faith, and uh, for me that's my biggest challenge, and I wish the church would do more to uh, facilitate, you know, both kinds of believers at church and to, to meet our needs, because I feel like most of the curriculum is is geared towards our individual relationship to the church and the churches and the church leaders' infallibility, which just doesn't do anything for me anymore. But, but wait, what's the difference? What's the difference between the way you believe and others? Because are you saying, because I don't buy the Joseph Smith story that he actually translated from Golden Plates, I don't believe that, in fact, there were um, this group of people who traveled uh, you know, from Jerusalem to the Americas. I don't believe that part, but I like the the moral component of the stories. I like the other part. Like, like, the, like I guess for some Christians, it doesn't matter whether Jonah was actually swallowed by a whale, right? That there was a bigger morality, moral story that was going on. That's kind of where you are. Is that the difference? Yeah, so I don't believe the Book of Mormon is a historical document, but I still believe in the way that faith grows, as described in Alma 32. That's still very real to me. Uh, that doesn't ever change. I still believe in the concept of Zion, where we take care of each other and are one as a people, and I still believe that the idea of the theomorphic nature of man is beautiful and says a lot about you know the way we should see each other. Yeah. But, but that doesn't mean my testimony is any less sincere or real or in need of a community. It just means that I don't literally believe anymore. And I wish that there was... I wish the Church would do more for people like me, because there's nothing for us right now. John Delin, can can um, can Tom go to the the LDS Temple, confessing that openly, that idea that he doesn't believe historically that the Book of Mormon is true in that sense? The the short answer is it depends on Tom's conscience and it depends on the bishop that he happens to draw. I know of bishops that allow atheists to be Sunday school teachers. I know of bishops that allow temple recommends for people who don't profess literalistic belief. 
Um, and that, that tends to be sort of outside of Utah. But if you happen to draw a bishop that is, is a little bit more fundamentalist, you can have a very different experience. But that's, that's ultimately, you know, what I'm grateful for is that the church has um, drafted the questions in a way and set up the temple recommend interview process in a way to where ultimately the, 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 the member, him or herself, becomes the ultimate judge as to their worthiness along with the leader. And so that's a process that each of us go through. There have been times where I didn't feel like I could answer the temple questions. Right now I feel like I can, um, and, it, and it just totally depends. There, um, so that, that, that'd be my answer. Yeah, Tom, before you go, are you still with me? Yep. Uh, how open are you uh, about this perspective to those close to you? Are you, are you, are you out, I guess is the way um, to Yeah, I, I am, and that's why I have no problem saying that I'm Tom from Las Vegas yeah. because if people hear my voice, they're going to recognize who I am, and that's totally fine. And, um, and I don't think I, I should have to hide my, my faith either, that it's metaphorical. If people want to believe literally, I have no problem with that, and I'm not going to denigrate anybody for that. And I only ask in return the same respect for my metaphorical testimony. That's all I ask, and I think that's pretty reasonable. Tom, glad you called. Thanks so much. 801-585-WEST is the number to join us. Here's an email from Mace who writes, I left the Mormon Church about six years ago. I still remember the moment when reading about the history where I realized how many lies I'd been taught and how many I had taught on my mission. I left the state. I got married and established my life outside of the church. I'm now back in Utah and generally keep silent around Mormon family and friends about it. When asked, I'm frank but polite. It becomes very uncomfortable and is strained friendships and my relationships with some family. You can join us, 801-585-WEST, our email address, radiowest at KUER.org. John DeLynn is with us, creator of Mormon Stories uh, podcast. Last year, he published a survey called Understanding Mormon Disbelief. We'll put a link to that on our website. We'll get to more voices when we get back from a break. You're listening to Radio West on KUER. This is Radio West. I'm Doug Fabrizio. Today in the program, we're talking about an article published uh, last Sunday in the New York Times by the religion correspondent Lori Goodstein, profiled this crisis of doubt going on within uh, some Mormons who are encountering troubling information on the Internet and other places. 801-585-WEST is the number to join the conversation. Our email address, radiowest at KUER.org. We have with us John DeLynn creator of Mormon Stories podcast. He published a survey called Understanding Mormon Disbelief. Joining us now is Kimberly Lewis, a blogger whose work appears on the site Feminist Mormon Housewives. She wrote a piece called Supporting the Faith Quest earlier this week. She's joining us from a studio in Hartford, Connecticut. And Kimberly Lewis, welcome to you. Thanks for being with us. Thank you so much, Doug. I'm pleased to be here. Philip Barlow is also joining us, a professor of Mormon history and culture in the Religious Studies Program at Utah State University. He's the editor of a, a Thoughtful Faith, a collection of essays on belief by Mormon scholars. Joining us also from Utah Public Radio, and Philip Barlow, welcome to you. Good morning, Doug. Thanks. Philip Barlow, let me start with you. How are you reacting to, um, well, articles like Laurie Goodstein's? Um, what, what, what are you making of this? Are you seeing it as a wave, of a, as a crisis that needs really to be dealt with and talked about? Oh, absolutely. I've been doing that for 30 years, but the Internet has uh, changed everything. So um, very few of these issues that have um, been discussed, such as blacks or masons or issues with the first vision or polygamy, etc., are new. Uh, They've been around for many decades, but um, the Internet is raising consciousness. The globalization of the world generally is raising consciousness, so it's a Um, There are analogous problems going on in all religious traditions, internationally, Christian and otherwise, but uh, there are some inflections about Mormonism going on. Uh, you're saying this is going on in other in other churches. I I, I guess one of the questions that raises, though, is whether or not— is the is the Mormon church's message different in some way because it's predicated on certain facts— um, that these stories are literal, that the Book of Mormon is an actual story, this thing actually happened. Does that make Mormonism in some way unique, or do all religions have to deal with which, some parts that are historical and some parts that are allegorical? Uh, well, there are distinctives within Mormonism, and as, um, as has been pointed out for many decades, 
and is being discussed in the current climate, um, Mormonism, as well as you cited, Terrell Givens is pointing out that Mormonism is a very young religion and it's, um, it's the world record uh, world champion record keeper, so um, it's it's uh, <laughs> distinctively flush with materials to study, and so that puts the questions front and center in a way that's different than some of the religions. But yeah, the very idea of a belief in God or a God incarnate with Christianity or a Muslim prophet who had the miraculous experiences that he reports having, any of those things are subject to analogous uh, questions. Yeah. Kimberly Lewis, if you're a Mormon and you have these kinds of questions, um, what, what happens? What, 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 what's it like to go through that kind of experience where you have these kind of questions? What, what, do you, what would you encounter in your you know, circle of friends and faith leaders? Well, that would depend upon the setting. Um, say in classes that I've taught Sometimes uh, something might come up, someone has read something, and they ask a question that isn't, that doesn't fall within the norm. And generally, there's a shocked silence and then a little frisson of excitement as people realize they're going to hear something new. It's, um, in New England, I think it's a little better. I think there's a little bit more openness. People are more familiar with outside ideas. And so it might get tossed around a little bit within the classroom setting where someone's comfortable thinking of some new way of looking at something. But a lot of times I know for myself, people want to take me to the side, especially if I've taught a class and something has come up for them personally. Mm -hmm. They don't want to raise their hand and they don't want to bring it up in the context of the class. It's going to be secret. It's going to be a phone call afterwards or I'm going to get pulled outside and someone will say I've always wondered about this or that and in a hushed voice where they don't want anyone to know is it seen as a moral failing or disloyalty in some way to the church if you express that out loud disloyalty yes because I would say overall culturally exploration outside of church sanctioned materials is not encouraged in fact if it isn't church sanctioned then it's automatically a lot of times labeled anti and that is like one of the worst things to be caught doing looking at these anti mormon ideas even if they might be true you're a convert to mormonism and you've written about coming from this multi-faith background where you were used mm-hmm. to you know debating theology so in some mm-hmm. ways it's easier for you but what about for the orthodox mormon who was raised in the culture who had never before encountered this information are they equipped you know, to handle it. That's a really, that's an astute observation. I find that they really aren't because within Mormon culture, your your relationship to the church is every bit as, it's every bit as pertinent as it is to God. In fact, the two can be confused and that's what throws people into these very deep crises because it is seen as it is one and the same thing to question the church as it is to question God. So um, when they can't parse that out, there's a total tailspin. Mm. Philip Barlow, what about you on that question? Um, is it getting better? Are um, you know, Orthodox Mormons getting better at encountering those kinds of things or dealing with those kinds of things? You know, the, uh, the different ideas. Um, yeah, very unevenly. Sense. It's uh, the LDS Church is a lay church, which is one of its great strengths. Um, but it's a coin that, of course, has a flip side, and that means um, we have people without any particular training in these questions. Um, by and large, teaching classes, giving talks in their church meetings, etc., and so that's complex. But um, the church is trying to respond to these things, and the wheels of a large and complex and international organization like this turns slowly. So I think we could do an awful lot of things an awful lot better, um, particularly in the manuals and curriculums of the church. And as Kimberly just pointed out, in the culture of the church, um, which um, would vary geographically and very very educationally and socioeconomically, but a culture that is not, uh, it exists, the church exists to promote faith and certain values, and so um, they respond to these questions imperfectly, but the idea that uh, we equate questioning with sin or disloyalty is a real 
cultural problem, I think. But on the other hand, the church is, um, four or five years ago, put out a very eloquent and uh, uh, important, thoughtful statement on the role of history, put it on the church history department's website. Anyone can read it, and it's uh, one I'm proud of. And in years um, prior to that, between 1980 and and the year 2000 or thereabouts, um, I wasn't particularly proud of their official understandings and attitudes towards history. We've already alluded to the Joseph Smith Papers Project, yeah. which is enormous. The Mountain Meadow Massacre book that was church-sponsored uh, is more candid than anything Leonard Arrington and his colleagues could have put out in the 1970s. They're putting out a new four-volume history that will be more candid and thoroughgoing. They've put out a statement on academic programs studying Mormonism in the secular university, and it's an improving one. Um, the new seminary and institute manuals, and for all I know, Sunday school manuals, but I'm not, I don't have any direct knowledge about that. Wait, wait, wait. So being, go back, because are you, are you saying that, because my, my question has always been sort of, what good is all of that candor? If this information is not reaching reaching rank and file members, I mean, this, it's it's great for you know for scholars and historians to have access to this and say, look, the the church is being more open. But if that information is not getting into lesson manuals in church or within the seminary system, you know, it may satisfy historians or church members who are you know inclined to look for this stuff in the first place. But they're finding it anyway. I mean, wouldn't the point be to confront the stuff that? gets directly to the rank and file in in curriculum over the podium because it doesn't seem like, or at least I don't know, but it doesn't seem like that message is getting to the, the mainstream Hans Matzens out there. Yeah, absolutely. It's a problem. It's not a problem that can be uh, addressed by turning on a dime. As I say, it's, a, it's sort of like many people in the United States and the world having fabulous joy and respect for um, old Barack Obama being appointed, uh, elected president of the United States. But when you speak with a large microphone to the world, um, it's much more complicated to run an organization like that. So it's not happening um, quickly, um, and it's not happening quickly enough for me. I think it will be good, but it is happening. I started to say that uh, lesson manuals that are being written at least for the seminary and institutes. Um, I do have a friend or two who are involved in the writing of those, and they're writing with the concept of inoculation in mind, among other things. How can we um, encourage a culture and classes that don't breed a faith that is an ostrich faith or a brittle faith that will crack um, just when questions present themselves? So they're working on it. We'll see how, what sort of quality results, but they are yeah. working on it. But what does that mean? Uh, will, uh, will, they, will they then start saying, Joseph Smith did have multiple wives, let's, let's talk about how you think about that, or there is evidence out there that may contradict the story we're telling? Uh, will they say that, or will they just sort of prep them more to deal with it when it comes? I mean, will they be more direct about some of these particular questions that seem to bother so many people? Yeah, well, that remains to be seen, and um, you don't know if they. I do. <laughs> you do. I'd love you do. To speak to that. <laughs> Please. I am a Sunday school teacher yeah. of children ages fourteen to eighteen. I am implementing the new curriculum in my classroom. It. Um, I would have to say, what it does allow for is variance. It does allow for um, alternate points of view. Yes, I have started tackling these ideas within my classroom, and and I love that word inoculation. That. Um, Philip used because that's exactly what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to open these youth's minds so that when they do come across this material, they do not fall on the floor in shock. Um, because that is a lot of times what happens with um, LDS members. So in my classroom, I can tell you that I am incorporating this open questioning and I am slowly, quietly, gently introducing some of these concepts. Um, to my classroom, mm. and they have actually wrapped their heads around it nicely. Youth is hungry for this. They are waiting for this. They're hearing this stuff. Yeah. They're hearing it from other sources, and they may have run across some of it themselves. Some of them have admitted they have. And well, they, I, aren't they the first ones who encounter this stuff? I mean, they're sure. you know it's 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 completely intuitive them to go look for information. Sure. Surely they're going to encounter it. John Delin, how well, much? Uh, of, Doug, if I could just insert one last thought. Sure. To, uh, to be clear, the the new curriculum that I'm 
talking about is being written now, so it's not out. Got it. Okay. John DeLynn, you, how many of these disbelieving Mormons could the church save or get back if they did start to adjust their, you know, their perspective a bit? You know, uh, it, that's a tough question because um, everyone's choice to stay or go is such a personal one. If, if you've been abused uh, in relation to the church, if you have a certain personality that maybe just isn't social to begin with, if, if the level of trauma that you've experienced, or if you don't have the same type of family relationships that might bind you to the church or even the, the pioneer heritage, you know, some of those people are just going to be able, are going to have to go and we're going to have to be comfortable with that. Mm. But I believe that, that there are many people who want to stay, like like Tom, who called earlier, like myself, like Hans Matson, And I absolutely believe that just like Judaism has been able to carve out a place for what, what they call Reformed Jews, you know, you don't have to believe necessarily that Moses even existed or even in God, but you can still even be a rabbi in Reformed Judaism. I believe that Mormonism will do as other religions have over time and carve out a bigger tent and more space for people like us. And I think I'm with Tom and others who just say, let's have uh, more honesty and openness. Let's have more um, charity for each other, and let's create bigger spaces. I don't want to get rid of Orthodox belief. I don't want to get rid of Orthodox members. In some ways, they're the backbone of the church. All I ask is is that the church create a space where we're not demonized, where we're not devalued, and where we can participate actively and, and ask questions and not be silenced and maybe be given some material and some space that, that's edifying to us, as, as Tom said, on a more metaphorical or symbolic level. And I think if the church can do that, I think they can save many people if they also address, as, as I said before, it's not just history. It's women. It's, it's the LGBT issues. It's some of the cultural issues. If they, can, if they can address those as well, I think they can save many because Reformed Judaism is the largest branch of Judaism today in the United States, as I understand it. And so that, that speaks brightly for what the church can do to create a bigger tent and accommodate uh, people like us as well. We're effectively out of time, but Kimberly Lewis and Philip Barlow, quick last question. Can the church work through these hiccups, you think, Kimberly, quickly? Absolutely. I do believe so. I mean, it's it's a very loving church. We like to serve each other. We're a wonderful community. And yes, I do. I believe people can broaden their perspectives and include everyone. Philip Barlow. Yes, I'm optimistic that it can, although it's a very delicate process. Reformed Judaism is effectively a different religion than Orthodox Judaism in some ways. So that represents a, a splinter and how to do this constructively is going to be a real art. Sounds like a whole show. Philip Barlow, thanks very much. Religion studies professor uh, with a focus on Mormon history and culture at Utah State University. We appreciate you being with us. My pleasure. Kimberly Lewis, a blogger at Feminist Mormon Housewives. Kimberly, thanks. Sure. And John DeLynn, creator of Mormon Stories podcast, last year published the survey called Understanding Mormon Disbelief. We'll put it on our website. Radio West is a production of KUER News. Our thanks to Walker Adams, the program produced by Benjamin Bombard and Elaine Clark. I'm Doug Fabrizio. Thank you.